Mm-hmm. But efficiency is not a virtue. Efficiency is a measure of productivity. It really depends on what you're producing. You could produce bad things efficiently. Efficiency is not good then. We are extremely inefficient creatures, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I, th- I think so. It seems like we've been made that way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Schatzer, let me put my phone on airplane mode here. <laughs> and I did not bring mine, so we will be, we'll well, be fine there. Yeah, wise man talking about technology. <laughs> my Apple Watch is dead, so no worries there. Dr. Schatzer, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, before we dive in, do you want to give a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, so so my name is Jacob Schatzer. I serve as Associate Professor of Theological Studies and Associate Dean in the School of Theology and Missions here at Union. And you've been here at Union for how long? This is the start of my third year teaching here. Um, I taught a couple other places before coming to Union. Um, so third year teaching here, and I graduated from Union in 2007. Okay, okay. Where Where else have you been? In your journeys? Yeah, so I guess b- between there, uh, I went to Southern Seminary after graduating from Union uh, to do an MDiv, and then I did a, a PhD at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, I then taught on the faculty of Sterling College, which is in Kansas, a rural town called Sterling, Kansas. And yeah. uh, then I was on the faculty for a year at Palm Beach Atlantic University uh, before coming here. Okay. That's quite a bit of traveling. Quite a bit of moving, yeah. 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 We've Man. enjoyed settling in here in Jackson. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, I also, I wanted to ask you an icebreaker question. How many marathons have you run this year? Ah, how many marathons have I run this year? Well, the the question for that, I guess, would be what counts as a marathon. Okay. Uh, I, I have run four marathons and, and one ultra marathon this past weekend. So if you count an ultra marathon as a marathon, then five. How but, many marathons is in an ultra marathon? Well, it just depends. So an ultra marathon is anything longer than a marathon, but typically they're 50K, 50 miles, 100K or 100 miles. Which one did uh, you do? And I did a 50 mile uh, run this past weekend at Montgomery okay. Bell State Park. So that's a little less than two marathons in one? Yeah, a little less than two. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yep. So what, what's the time frame with all of those? Oh, my fastest marathon was just under four hours. Okay. Um, the the 50 miles took about 11 and a half hours. It was a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah, but you were still booking it, though. Yeah, I, I felt like it wasn't that fast. 11 and a half hours is a long time to be running, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Just to not stop moving is an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> okay, so how, how far apart were those? Uh, I did the, I ran the Nashville, uh, rock and roll marathon in April. I ran three marathons in five days in Jackson, uh, in June. So Wait there's, a minute. yeah, so there's a, there's a marathon series in Jackson called the Jackal Marathons. Okay. Uh, and they do five marathons in five days, uh, on three different courses. Um, so they do two here at Union on the trails, uh, uh-huh. two at, uh, Pinson Mounds mm-hmm. State Park, and then one at Chickasaw. And so I signed up for three. So I ran once at Union, once at Pinson, and then once at, at in Chickasaw. In five days' time. In five days. So, yeah, but everybody else was doing, well, a lot of the other people were doing five in five days. So I was the one taking the now, easy way out. There were way out. more people not doing any at yeah, that. So that's, that's true. That's that's quite a feat. Yeah, so that okay. was in June, and then the, uh, the Ultra was just this past weekend. So beginning of August. Have you always been a, a big runner? No. So I uh, I started taking, uh, I guess, health and all that a little more seriously probably about six or seven years ago. I ran a little bit in seminary before that, um, but really started running more when I lived in Kansas. 
running longer, a little bit longer when I lived in Florida, and then really just the past year or so in getting up beyond into half marathon and marathon distance. Well, I felt like I had to ask you about that because when I heard that you were a marathon runner, I was really interested because I'm interested in anyone who's pursuing excellence in multiple domains at once (laughs) and anything with the word ultra in it has to involve excellence to some degree or another. And you just, you you just run it, you just run, you don't stop, you know, and you just eat things every once in a while and try not to get hurt. The, the real thing with the with trail marathons or with an ultra marathon, the goal is pretty simple. You just try not to fall and break anything. <laughs> yeah. So I, I managed to not, I guess I kind of fell a couple times this weekend, but I didn't break anything. So that was good. Wow. So you is this a, an annual thing for you? You have like a running season? Yeah, I don't know yet. Uh, so this kind of this year I had set a goal to run more and uh-huh. to do uh, more marathons. And so I'm kind of now at the point where I, I, I've got to figure out what I want that to to look like. I mean, it takes up time um, and it's good to spend some time on fitness, but I also have a young family and, and right. things like that. And, right. and my wife loves that I have a hobby. And so that's good, but I, I don't need to be running 50 mile races every month or two or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. So Well, physical yeah. activity is great for brain work also. Indeed. They, they complement each other. Indeed. Um, okay. So let me set the stage for where we are in this podcast um, so that uh, you and I and anyone else who will be listening are all kind of on the same page. Um, I recently had Dr. Barnard, one of your colleagues, yeah. also mm-hmm. on this show, and we talked for uh, about two hours on technology, mostly. Um, we also talked about human flourishing in general, which I think you, there will be some overlap there yeah, with yeah. you and your book also. But um, I think I think... At this point, most of the people listening to this podcast will have at least thought a little bit about technology Mm -hmm. and about some of the potential dangers, at least with the things that they see day to day, like smartphones or social media, things like that. So with that said, um, what what part of the conversation uh, does your book speak to? Like what 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 are you hoping to offer the the overall discussion around technology with your book? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And probably the first thing that I would say is that if your listeners have already listened to, to Dr. Barnard, they probably are, are more tuned into things that my target audience isn't. Okay. Um, and so so I don't know how much uh, new I, I will uh, provide or anything like that. I, I think that uh, Dr. Barnard is super thoughtful on these things and really, really helpful and it has helped me think about uh, a lot as well. Um, but really the target audience for the book is people... Uh, Christians that tend to buy into the idea that technology is just neutral. It's just a neutral tool. And so if that's the case, then the main question that Christians face is how do we use it for good and not use it for bad? So it's pretty straightforward. If something is a sin, it's a sin whether you use technology to carry it out or not. Uh, But what I wanted with the book to help people see is that the, the problem is actually deeper than that because the technologies that we use do shape the way that we go about living in the world. They shape the way we think about what it means to be human uh, shapes the way we think about uh, success and productivity and, and all those sorts of things. And so the question that Christians face about technology is not just uh, should I do a sin with this particular technology or not, but rather uh, what kind of person am I becoming uh, when I'm interacting with these uh, tools, these devices? What, are, what am I tending towards? What am I becoming like? And so really my goal was to just 
help get that question on people's radar. There are a lot of answers to that question, but but I was just really wanting my audience to to move beyond uh, that idea that technology is just neutral. Mm-hmm. So, and this this would apply to all technology, not just digital technology. Yeah, this absolutely, is- absolutely. I think so. I make the case in the book that that digital technology isn't just, uh, we can't just excuse it by saying, oh, well, we've always had new technology, and every time a new technology comes out, people get concerned, uh-huh. right? Uh, but I think that, that the amount of time that people spend immersed in digital technology uh, amplify its effects significantly and therefore make it a little more serious to be concerned about. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like you hear the, the old adage, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, well, most of us are not holding hammers very frequently, unless we're, you know, the carpenter or something. Uh, and also, like, no one's using a hammer to text their mom and watch a Netflix show and get on social media. Like, the, the yeah. digital technology is so much more immersive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and studies are already beginning to show, uh, you know, features that are very similar to addictions and things like that, if not just straight-up addictions, but similar to substance abuse, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I wanted to, to help people see that. And really, the, I guess the hook that I, I try to provide in the book that uh, probably is is a reason that some people are drawn to it is the whole notion of transhumanism, right? So the, the book is Transhumanism in the Image of God. God. And then the reason that that is, is because I found with transhumanism and posthumanism, which are these kind of philosophical perspectives about evolving, taking control of our evolution and moving beyond what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And I felt like most Christians, uh, evangelical Christians anyway, hear those kind of things and they think, oh, that's not me. I'm not interested in living inside a computer or such and such. Right. Uh, but what I was beginning to notice the more that I read and thought about these things is is actually the ways that we're slowly being changed are actually making us more like what the transhumanists would project for us. They're, they're making us value some of the same things that transhumanism values. Yeah. And so I kind of use that as the example of, of kind of, see, this is more serious than you might think. It's not just about uh, what you should do on your smartphone. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't, I didn't realize until reading your book just how common the, the, the transhumanist way of thinking actually is. And we can get into defining it, but, yeah, yeah. but I just didn't realize how, how much that was a part of our culture. Yeah. You know, yeah. so now that I've read the book, I'm seeing it everywhere, you know. <laughs> so I think about how uh before I was born and then when I first began to love stories, it was Star Wars, mm-hmm. right? And the main bad guy has been consumed by technology. Yeah. Right? But now and so he's the he's kind of like the technology archetype, the robot man. Yeah. But now the archetype has shifted from an evil character to a good character and you've got Iron Man, mm-hmm. who's basically the same thing in his relationship with technology. Yep. But it switched from evil to good. Yeah, yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so your book is called Transhumanism and the Image of God. So if we're going to talk about it, we've got to, I guess, define both of those things. Yeah. So do you want to talk about transhumanism first or image of God first? Sure, let, let's talk about uh, transhumanism first since it okay. comes first in the title and might okay. be less recognizable. Uh, transhumanism is a pretty broad uh I guess you could say group of thinking and thinkers and philosophies uh, that that basically center on the idea that that humans are now at the place where we can and should take control of our own evolution and plot the course for what we will become next. And so transhumanists emphasize uh, the freedom of individuals to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not harming other people, including 
pretty radical experiments with uh, interfacing with technology uh, and uh, and kind of building this new future that is supposed to be uh, open for all, but really uh, I think is plagued with some some internal consistency inconsistencies. But is is focused on this notion of hey, let's take control of where we're going to go next, uh, mm-hmm. and let's let everyone do whatever they want, merge themselves with uh, technology, pharmaceuticals, whatever the case may be, and 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 plot what's next for the the human race. How does how do pharmaceuticals fit into that? Yeah, so so just uh, the way that different, uh, especially the class of pharmaceuticals that are often called nootropics or nootropics that are that deal with uh, mind uh, drugs. Yeah, mind yeah. drugs exactly that can enhance human performance and certain uh, effects and things like that. So so transhumanism isn't only about technology and how to you know. People often think of, oh, uploading my consciousness into a machine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that is a piece of it, but it's just as much about uh, uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals and, and anything, basically anything that anyone might consider to be an enhancement, uh, they should have the right and be encouraged to experiment with and try and, and see uh, where that might lead. So it's a little bit bigger than technology, but I focus primarily yeah. on the, the yeah. technological implications just because of the particular angle that my book takes. So. I guess in all of these examples that you list, there there are going to be pros and cons, right? So if we were to take the medicine, the medicine example, the pharmaceuticals, the fact that medicine is getting more individualistic, on one hand, that's a good thing Mm -hmm. because our bodies are so complicated that sometimes we need uh, medicines that are more tailored to the individual Mm -hmm. and there's not a one size fits all cure for everything. Yeah. But then on the other hand, the the dark side of that is that you start to think that everything is fixable and that everything should be fixed. Yeah. yeah. Even when it's actually working just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 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 identifies, like like you said, some of the pros and cons is that on the one hand, these advances in technology and medicine and things like that, like we don't want to go back to a time when we didn't have vaccines, I don't right. think. Like, I think that we can label that a good. But at the same time, we should be willing to say, hey, the fact that so much, like, like just take vaccines, right? Because mm-hmm. that's that's not in that distant of past. Yeah. When the vaccines for, for many common things uh, weren't available. Uh, when you live in a world where all those things are vac- vaccinated, like, I don't live in a world where I legitimately worry about my children dying. Yeah. Right, which yeah. which which changes my relationship and dependence upon God. Yeah, I think in significant ways. Now, I don't want to take my children back and and risk them, you know, getting polio or measles or whatever. But I I have to also be willing to say, hey, this good advance in medicine it makes it tempts me to think that that I don't need to rely on God. Mm-hmm. Right, in, in ways that that those who were parents uh, in earlier, you know, a hundred years ago face these regular realities and uh and, and we don't want to diminish the the goodness uh that that these advances have had but we just have to be willing to say hey it was a human thing that we figured out go figure that something bad came along with it and one of the bad things that often comes along with medical advance and technological advance is this this illusion that we are champions of our own fate and and that we're better off that way too mm-hmm. so what are the to to bring it back to technology again, what are the the good things that smartphones and social media are helping with that also have a dark side? Yeah, like like what are those things that they exist to help us with? Yeah, so I guess uh, we can just look at on on the 
most obvious level with communication. Like they, they facilitate communication. Okay. I mean, when I first came uh, to Union, not that long ago, 16 years ago, uh, I left my now wife, my girlfriend. She was back in Iowa, eight hours away. And I remember getting calling cards so I could call her and talk to her. I, I didn't have a cell phone until mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years later. Um, so it, it's amazing now. And I think a good thing that we're able to communicate uh, much more easily. Uh, I mean, we were able to coordinate this meeting yeah. via email. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so there are goods with that, but there, there also then there, there's some downsides of that too. For instance, I, I'll often tell students at the beginning of the semester when I talk about uh, technology policy in my classroom, uh, I tell them I, I would like them to consider the classroom a device-free zone, the classroom. So not just when class starts, put your phone away, but please don't just text outside in the hall and then put it away when you come in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I tell them that the reason I want them to do that is because 10 years from now, they're going to be on their phones texting the very people who they're physically next to right now. (laughs) Right. And so, so one of the dangers is if we're always so easily able to communicate with those who are far away, we will neglect building relationships and communicating with those who are close by. And then that's like an endless cycle, right? Because then you do, okay, you have a few friends from college, but you, they would have been better friends if you'd interacted more. And then 10 years later, you're texting them and ignoring your coworkers, uh-huh. right? And so so I think that, that all of that, uh, you know, there are these pros that we can identify, but then there are also ways that the technology itself shapes us that, that are cons. So it's not just that we can exchange one for the other even, but, but those cons are kind of the costs of the pros, so the danger is not what what it seems like what you're saying the danger is not so much that technology will one day turn us into something less human it's that in a sense it's already happening in small ways yeah i think so i mean i i believe that that i guess this gets to the image of god question okay. i mean i believe that there's uh that, that god has created us in his image uh what that means i mean theologians have wrestled through the centuries with what that might mean uh you you kind of have a, a image of god of the gaps theory where it's yeah. like anything that we think makes us different from animals we'll say that's the image of god but then people are like wait dolphins seem to be communicating what's going on uh so so i don't think we can really go that route uh one of my uh friends and colleagues ben mitchell uh who's a, a pretty well-known ethicist basically says uh, the to be human is to be created in the image of God to be created in the image of God is to be human it's kind of irreducible beyond that and when we reduce it to something else then we risk alienating other aspects of what it means uh, to be made in the image of God it's kind of maddening for people who want to nail things down yeah yeah and so so all of that to say I don't think I one of the ironies of, of the book is that I'm trying to say, watch out, we're changing without realizing it. Yeah. But fundamentally, I don't really believe on that essential level that we will or can change because I think, I think that there's something essential about being human. Um, and that's another aspect where uh, evangelical Christians will run up against this, this way of thinking, maybe without realizing it, is that uh, th- those with an orthodox Christian faith, I think, uh, hold this idea that there is something essential about human nature. It is not something that's infinitely changing. It's not something that we create. It's something that God created and is static, and it does not change. 
It is human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas transhumanists tend to think of human nature as a social construct and something that we are welcome to construct in a different way. Or at least temporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at least at least temporary and, and, and changeable. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so that image of God piece, on the one hand, it uh, might tell us more or, or stand in more to remind us that there is something substantive and permanent about being human that we don't need to try to move beyond. And in fact, moving moving beyond, it's it's really impossible. Like no matter what we do, no matter how many bionic arms we add, we are still going to be human. And I, and I believe that. But I think that really what it what it comes down to is we don't become less human. Like there's not a human scale, and you lose points because you have a bionic arm or something. Right. Right. Uh, but rather, the more we seek technology to soothe our alienation from God and from each other and from the world, I think the more alienated we're really going to become from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a question of becoming less human or more human, but it is a question of of moving more into a place of human flourishing or away from that place, which which I would define fundamentally by our relationship with God that overflows into our relationship with others, our relationship with the world, our relationship with ourselves, if you want to talk about the interior life that way. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I want to push as close to the gap as I can. Yeah. So uh, what what would you say are the most essential parts of being human? Like like what does that mean? Yeah, to you? so so parts um or if you were to define it, how, yeah. how would you go about well, doing that? Well, so here's one of the dangers um that I'm immediately thinking of as I'm trying to to answer your question is you have to be really careful uh to to not name something that that then would allow some humans to be put outside exactly you know right so so if you said well uh humans tend to all be embodied right so i I would want to say being embodied is part of being human um but what does that mean you have to have 10 fingers well no probably someone with nine fingers or 12 fingers they're still embodied right but you can see that there seems to be i mean would just a head if we could somehow sustain just a head, would that head be human? And like on the one hand, I would want to say, yes, it's still essentially human. It's a living human seat of consciousness is in the mm-hmm. brain. But but at the same time, it's, it's not human. Like there's something unhuman or inhumane about that. And so I think, and then there's tons of gradations between that, right? right. Between number of fingers and just floating head. Um, and so so even something as simple as saying that to be human is to be embodied uh, becomes really difficult to define really, really carefully. Um, but but I think that I would I would want to push on something like the, the traditional language of talking about body and soul, uh, not to uh, separate the two, because I don't think that I think we're embodied souls. I, th- I don't think you can separate the two. They separate in death, and that's a bad thing. And, and yeah. God promises to bring them back together in the resurrection, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's uh, it's it's something about being an embodied soul created in the image of God, uh, but existing right now in a fallen world, which means that that body and that soul are dismembered and alienated and broken in various ways that all of us are working through uh, in different ways. So one idea that I'm toying with, and I'd like to hear what you think about it, is that being human is, you, you can't separate being human from our relationship with God. That that fellowship with God is is core 
to what it means to be human. And that might be actually the deepest part. So I know you said relationship with God in connection with human flourishing. Mm -hmm. Would you also tie it to just human in general? Yeah, I I guess. But, but I mean, someone who, I don't know, someone think of like the, the most, uh, anti-God person you could imagine, right. I, I wouldn't want to say, they're not human because right. they're an atheist, like, right? right? They're, right. Then we're opening ourselves up to some pr- problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe so, capacity for... Yeah, yeah, capacity for would, would probably be, be helpful. But that's why I, I think that putting in human flourishing reminds us that when we're talking about the human, we really uh, need to be talking about the an ideal, uh, what humans should strive for, what, what the human operating properly in the proper relationships looks like. Uh, which is ultimately what we see in the face of Christ, uh, and then acknowledge that that no human on this side of eternity connects with that ideal perfectly. But that doesn't mean we give up that there is a human nature, or we give up that 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 it's a helpful definition or, or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I really appreciate what you said about the fact that in in future time our bodies and souls will be reunited. That's huge, and that's almost the exact opposite of the transhumanist idea. Yeah. Right? The idea yeah. the idea of transcending that unity yeah. between the two. Yeah, and so so this this question of of really wh- where does my hope come from, right? To put it in some some biblical terminology, I think for for orthodox Christianity, the idea is that that God will fulfill his promises. And he will use us in various ways to fulfill his promises, uh, mm-hmm. but God will fulfill his promises. And that's very different from the typical uh, transhumanist perspective, which is an atheistic perspective that says, hey, upstairs is empty. We'd better figure this out ourselves or no one's going to figure it out. We then become our own hope. And then, yeah, we'd better experiment. Yeah. Um, and now, really in the past, I'll say two two years, um, there's a growing group of, of what would call themselves Christian transhumanists. Um, and, and I don't address that very much in the book, honestly, because when I was writing the book, it was a small group yeah. and it wasn't, there weren't many evangelicals connected to it. And so for, for my audience and what I was trying to do, it wasn't relevant. Um, but it's becoming more so. And these are, are Christians who are trying to still maintain this idea that it is God ultimately who will bring in eternity and who will bring hope and who will fix all things. But maybe this is the method he's going to use. And so that's different, see, from the transhumanists because there right. is a God and it's God working through humans. Um, but it's also not quite a middle ground. It's still pretty different from a, a, right. an orthodox and, and traditional understanding. And so I think that, that evangelicals will, will probably be forced to wrestle with that a little more in, in coming years as that group becomes more vocal and more organized. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I still think that there, there are some issues there because I still think that that even as we acknowledge God working through things like medicine to alleviate suffering, still the transhumanist impulse to become something other than human, uh, I think is just just not the best way to talk about it. Like I think that there would be commonalities that I would have with uh, with with Christian transhumanists, but I just would maybe say, ah, I just why, why do we have to say it that way? <laughs> that so seems it's a to open up the issue. I I think so. Well, it's it's okay. a language issue. It's also an eschatological issue. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, will uh, will God suddenly bring in his kingdom in a way that's radically different from what we're experiencing? Or will God slowly uh, translate 
uh, will God slowly work to bring his kingdom in in time? Yeah. Um, and so it, it really, it, it's connected to that that issue as well. And, and so that that's not where I am. Uh, that's kind of a, a post-millennial sure. uh, type of approach, the idea that things are going to get better and better and better and better, and then Christ is going to return. So most Christian transhumanists, from what I can tell, are kind of coming from that post-millennial perspective eschatologically um so so that's part of it and that's not just language that's substantive disagreement Mm -hmm. but i also think that 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 we would both want to affirm that god can do good things through technology right right Right. and 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 sometimes that troubles me because i notice i don't know maybe it's because i tend to be more uh pessimistic but i tend to notice the bad things uh the, the alienation that happens uh, things like that, and I tend to downplay the good things that happen. But I think we still need to be willing to say, God is sovereign and in control, and like He's using smartphones. Like I, I don't think smartphones are like completely of the devil and catching God by surprise, completely. right? You know, so so I just, but but finding the line there, of course, is really really hard. But yeah. I think that we have to embrace this idea that that God uses things like medicine to alleviate suffering by His gra- His grace, and He uses smartphones to keep people connected and in some sort. I don't want to say of community because I think community requires embodiment together, but some sort of communication at least uh-huh. across great distances. I think that's a good. And I think that we see something of God's communicative nature in that. Right. Right. So, so I just, it's, it's really tough though to draw those lines. And so that's again why like in the book, I'm not trying to say, hey, here are the answers. I'm just trying to draw people's attention to the fact that it's a lot more complicated than people think when they think it's just as simple as should I sin with this or not sin with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, like we said before we, you know, hit the record button, this is this is the next level down. This mm. is under the surface. I was trying to think, um when you were when you were talking about Christian you called it tr- Christian transhumanism? Yeah, there's but, a there's a group called the Christian Transhumanist Association. They actually Association. Have, they have a conference, uh they had their conference last year in Nashville. I don't know if they'll be in Nashville again this year, but, okay. but yeah. So while I was reading your book, I was I was trying to think what is the most convincing argument in favor of mm-hmm. transhumanism? Yeah. So it's like the opposite of straw man to steel man. I'm trying to steel man the position. And uh, the, the best thing I could think of was something like God made us extremely creative mm-hmm. and he made, he gave us this power and dominion over nature. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, and maybe the maybe the big question is where is that line? To a certain extent, that power over nature includes our own nature. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of the example, and I think you actually mentioned this in the book: the example of reading. Mm. Reading literally alters human nature, yeah, and that it rewires the brain. Yeah, it changes the the organ that you use for communication from your eyes or from your ears to your eyes. Mm-hmm. So there, there's at least some power over nature there. Yeah. yeah, so I think that one thing that's helpful here is to 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 recognize the different ways we can use the word nature. Uh-huh. So in so, sometimes we use, probably most commonly when we say nature, we mean like what's outside. 
right? You know, like nature, like out there. Uh, or we might mean like biology, what we have biologically is our, our nature. More external. Yeah, yeah. But but theologically, the term nature tends to, to refer to uh, the essence of what it means to be human, right? Okay. So so I think that what we can recognize is that while our, our, tech, our technology will change nature, like it'll, it'll, it does, it, it rewires our brains. Like everything we do rewires our brains, not just yeah. technology, but yeah. our brains are really malleable. That's something that we're, we've been, we've been learning in the last decade or two from neuroscience, which is really important for discipleship uh, to recognize that our brains are really malleable. So nature is changing there. Uh, but our human nature, if we say, well, human nature is to have a malleable brain, mm-hmm. that might be one item that you say is part of the essence of what it means to be human. Well, well, then human nature itself isn't changing, even as something biological uh, about humans might change as individual people, you know, read more or less or watch more show, you know, that yeah, brain rewiring yeah. stuff. And so, so I think that's, that's one of the other really hard pieces of this is that word nature there. Uh, two people can be talking about it and meaning very different things. Um, so it's important to separate that. Nature as just kind of what's outside or nature as biology versus human nature, uh, which then is more something like we would say the essence of what it means to be human, which would include some of those natural elements of of biology, but would also uh, wouldn't mean that just if our brain is rewired, therefore our nature has changed in that sense of human nature. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a helpful distinction. Um trying to decide whether I want to get into liturgies. <laughs> well, that is a, it's important thread in the book. So it's the just, third, it's the third main word, right? So you've yeah. got transhumanism image of God. And the third thing yeah, is, is, is liturgies. liturgy. Yeah. And I'm so, trying to decide if I want to save it. Let's just go right in. Yeah. So, so with this notion of liturgies, I was really influenced by the work of, of Jamie Smith while I was in, in graduate school. Um, so he has a, a book desiring the kingdom. Uh, it's, it's a trilogy now. Um, I forget the titles of all now. Of kingdom in it, uh, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I want to read those after reading your book and yeah. seeing it. I want to I want to get into those. Next. Yeah, and basically, and this this uh, Smith is is really uh, brilliant philosophically and theologically, and has a way of bringing things uh, to bear in ways that just make a lot of sense. And so, it wasn't necessarily that the ideas that I read in in Smith were completely original to him or or just completely out of nowhere, but they he just made sense of things. Yeah, that. that that I felt others had circled. And one of the insights that was particularly helpful is, is his insight that we're not just knowers, really really his uh, definition of human nature or, or one of the parts of human nature he would say is, is not just, we're not just, we don't just know things. Our, our nature is just not, not just to know, but actually uh, to be human is to be a lover, is, is to love. Now, obviously knowledge is Im, Im, important there, right? If you're going to love something, you're going to know something about it to start with, and you're going to want to know more about it. So his his notion of the human as a lover doesn't say information doesn't matter, or doesn't say knowledge doesn't matter, but rather it situates that information and knowledge in a broader context, uh, an emotional and a moral context. And so in doing that, he draws out the fact that, look, if we're more than just knowers, we're actually lovers. Well, we're trained as lovers in multiple ways, not just by the information we take in, but by what, what he calls liturgies, or, or we can just think of as, as habits, things we do all the time uh, that affect the way we see the world, what we care about, what we love. Um, and so he basically brings a whole group of things into 
uh, relevance that, that we might not think of as relevant. So what that notion of liturgy helps helps me to see is that the issue of technology is not merely just saying the right things about it, but it's recognizing that our very interaction with it, especially in daily practice, is going to shape what we love. So our knowledge shapes that too. It's not that knowledge doesn't matter, um, but but there's a lot more going on there. And so liturgies can be a helpful way. People often think of liturgies just connected to worship, like right. high church worship. Right. Well, high church worship is meant to be a pattern that people follow to love God right. And so what, what he does with that notion of liturgies in which I follow him in is just expand that and says, look, when you're in church, that's not the only pattern in your life that's teaching you to love something. There are other patterns everywhere, and they're teaching you um, through more than just knowledge. And so, uh, so I use that notion of liturgies uh, to basically say there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of practices in the modern world that are really liturgies of control. In other words, they're, okay. they're liturgies that teach you to love being in control, to think that you're in control, to want to be in control, to define the good as being in control. It's all around us. And, uh, and that actually, that notion of being in control of our own fate is, is not Christian. Right? The good news of Christianity is that God is in control and he loves you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the good news of transhumanism would be you can be in control. Hmm. Right, So these liturgies of control that our culture draws us into are actually drawing us into that transhumanistic notion of the good, which is to be in control. Okay, so several things there. Um, first of all, love as being all-inclusive makes me think of the, the famous verse, you will love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, it's all yeah. wrapped up there, yeah, absolutely. and he demands all of it. Yeah. Um, secondly... This was another thing that was brand new to me when reading your book, the idea of liturgy being more than just a church thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I grew up in a non-denominational, uh, mostly Southern Baptist church. Yeah. And so I was familiar with the word liturgy. I knew it meant something like work of the people or mm-hmm, something like yeah. that. Um, and you knew it was something you didn't do, right? Because you right, don't like those liturgical right. churches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and we, we, we had... We had uh, maybe simple versions of liturgy, mm-hmm. you know, responsive yeah. readings, yeah. Lord's Supper every week, stuff yeah. like that. Sermons are supposed to have three points. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I, this, this was brand new. The idea that, that you can apply liturgy, not just to, uh, sacred events, but also cultural mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. So I think one example that you use in your book is like sports yeah. are highly liturgical. Yeah. Um, there are ritual expectations mm-hmm. and, even uh, certain songs that you sing, yeah, that go along with that sport, yeah. Um, and I, I, I also thought you mentioned university. I was thinking maybe just the whole education system in yeah. general yeah, is absolutely. very uh, ritualistic. Mm-hmm. So would that be a good uh, synonym for liturgy? Just ritual. Yeah, I is think that, so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and to just again though, to I think one of the temptations both with liturgy and ritual is for us to think oh, that's not for me. Uh-huh. I'm not into liturgy. Right. I'm not into ritual. But it's like, no, actually you are. Yeah. <laughs> you have them. They're there. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just whether they're good or not yeah. and whether they're making you good or uh-huh. not. Yeah. And, and that's that's the question, especially as we move into an increasingly diverse cultural milieu where everyone feels like they can just kind of pick their tradition and they're like evaluating what do they want. Well, you know, it used to be that you would, you'd be solidly be in a tradition and you'd be formed to make judgments and understand and see the world 
and things like that. And we're still being formed. It's just often in counterproductive ways or in opposing ways. And yeah. I think it is part of the reason that, that people often feel so lost and feel like meaning is so hard to, to determine is because in our culture, we're being formed in so many contradictory ways. Uh, and so we have to learn to, to recognize some of that and also recognize that we're never going to recognize all of it recognize that we can't really just go out and choose it and control it because then again we're getting to those liturgies of control but at the same right. time uh th- that because we can be aware of it somewhat we we can submit ourselves to traditions and to formation in some ways if we you know decide to so it's just this complicated balance just like with the pros and cons of technology that it's like on the one hand we can see that we're being formed in this way but on the other hand, we can't just do we can't just fix it 100 percent, but we also can't do nothing. Right. It's somewhere in, in the middle there. This is huge. I mean, what you're saying is that these rituals, even in a church context, they're not something special that we can give to God necessarily. They exist in order to shape us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that was huge. That, yeah. that was really I had just never thought of it that way mm-hmm. before, that there's nothing there's nothing particularly magical about this high church stuff and these these rituals if they're good rituals they exist to transform how we think and how we operate yeah um yeah so, and yeah. ultimately i mean when we're especially when we're talking about rituals of worship we also have to recognize that that the the spirit of god must work in them right i mean we all yeah. know it's funny because you'll have people who will look back at their childhood and they will be like, the reason that I am still a Christian is because of this liturgy and this tradition and its rootedness. And then you'll like meet somebody else who's like, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I went to this liturgical church. It just yeah. made me go through the motions. Yeah. And then like conceivably you could find out they were at the same church and we're the same age, right? Uh-huh. The, the, so the, the magic, if we want to call it that, is really like that God works through these things. So I think it's it's an, it's really an anthropological statement to say it is it is part of the nature of being human to be shaped neurologically, spiritually, all of that through what we know and what we do. And it is, it is the grace of God to use his spirit to shape us into his image through yeah. things that he cho- chooses to, especially through, through worship and that. So I would still want to say worship liturgies are, are different than these kind of everyday liturgies. Mm-hmm. They share that they shape us, and God can work in both, uh, but they're, they're not completely um, identical either. But it's a thing of habit. Yeah, 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 I think so. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this applies to something that Dr. Barnard and I talked a little bit about with uh, the notion of vices and virtues, mm-hmm. because those terms refer to not just individual sins yeah. or individual good things, but a habit, a pattern yeah. mm-hmm. that goes over the course of a lifetime. Yeah. So if you struggle with a specific vice, like if I struggle with sloth mm-hmm. as a vice, that doesn't mean necessarily that I just you know, was late getting out of the bed one day. It's yeah. that I have this pattern, this habit that's built up in my life mm-hmm. that I need to break free from. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, and they're, they're patterns that build in us and impact our capacity to enjoy the good and love the beautiful. Um, and I'm, I'm not as, as well-versed in the virtue and vice tradition, um, b- but, uh, but I think that that's, that's another element to look at there is there the, the capacity to, in, to, to enjoy loving God. It's just like, it's like you'll hear people say, well, 
when I hear about hell, it sounds like the place I'd want to be. It sounds like where all the partying's happening, right? <laughs> well, there's there's a lack of capacity to enjoy God in a person who would say something like that, yeah. right? And of course, we all lack that capacity uh, to a certain degree. That's part of what sanctification is, is having our capacity to enjoy God developed. But it is developed through these these habits. And, and, and yeah, the church has traditionally used the language of virtue and vice to to refer to these habits, virtues being the habits that, that uh, make you stronger in your ability to experience and enjoy fellowship with God and vice being those that that uh, move you away from that and decrease that capacity uh, the grace of God is that 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 even vicious people by God's grace can ex- experience God and, and be transformed sometimes very quickly mm-hmm. um, but I think one of the the difficulties in in our modern world uh, is that we we don't really believe that about virtue and vice so much anymore or we just believe oh they're just they're just socially useful things are called virtues and vices are really fun. So you should, or we just completely flip them around. Like uh, the, there's an article that I have some of my students reading in one of my classes that talks about curiosity and how we think of curiosity as a good thing, uh, but actually curiosity was, was categorized as a vice and it kind of meant this desire to know things that you just didn't need to know. It killed right? the cat. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, <laughs> in the academic world, like, we, we reward curiosity so often. Yeah. Like, oh, this student just has a voracious hunger to learn, and they always want. And that can be a good thing, right? But that can also be a consuming thing that decreases your capacity to be content in your relationship with God and your place in the world, right? Mm. And so so this language of, of virtue and vice, I think, is, is, is really useful in helping us think about the way that God uses habits in our sanctification uh, to transform us, hopefully, into the image of his son. So then the question becomes, how is technology liturgical? Yeah, so so I think that it uh, it kind of at some level goes back to that when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So in some way, uh, technology is liturgical because it encourages you to look at the world through a lens that employs the technology. I mean, we see this uh, right in people order something at a restaurant not so much because they want it the most or the, but they think it's going to be the coolest picture to post on social media yeah, right like yeah. like technology there is 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 shaping and and forming um that or uh you know just challenging us to think about our reality in the oh how can i post about this or how can i it just it it changes uh everything about the way that we go about life and frame life and think about reality and think about what's important so, iPhone. I don't know if I don't know if Android is this way, but iPhones have this thing where you can you can track your screen time. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing that lately, mm-hmm. and I've been seeing the average and whether I'm going up or down. Yeah. Um, the average, I think the average person looks at their iPhone eighty times a day. Yeah, I've seen numbers like that. Yeah. I thought that I was really good with my cell phone usage. Yeah. I was right at the average. <laughs> I was. I was. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. eighty a day, yeah. pretty yep. consistently. Yep, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's a lot more times than I realized." Yeah, well, that, this is one of the ironies too, right? Is is one of the great hopes of us not being consumed by our technology is that there's an app for that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and on the one hand, I think we just have to say, "Hey, it's true." Like we can use technology to bring to our attention that there's a problem. Uh, and, and we see this even now. This is another thing that's that's changed even since I finished writing the book is that studies are showing more clearly the negative effects of screen time on children. Hmm. 
And so studies, which are disseminated technologically, that use technological means to conduct the study, like technologies involved in doing the study, and the result of these studies is that parents are being more careful. It's now less socially acceptable to just park your kid with an iPad yeah. and let them just be on it for six hours, right? And and so I think it makes it really hard because you have to acknowledge that there are some technological solutions, maybe not solutions, technological helps to technological problems. Mm -hmm. But then you see, well, wait, I'm just now further dependent on technology. I am not formed to recognize that I'm spending too much time on my phone. I need my phone to tell me I spend too much time on my phone, right? And so so we see there how there's just an endless spiral. If we're always seeking technological solutions, it's still just going to bring another technological problem. Okay. Wow. So let's apply that to social media then. Yeah. So in what way is social media liturgical? Yeah, so I think uh, social media, part of the difficulty is I want to talk about issues of identity, right? Like who I am. And and I, I think that social media encourages a certain kind of performance of identity. But I think that most, uh, like, anthropologists and stuff would say, hey, look, performing an identity, that's old hat. We've been doing that since, you know, long. But, like, the color of clothes that a tribesman chooses to wear as a way of performing his identity. So social media is no different. Uh, And so I I guess I would want to say that the performance of identity, that that I'm going to choose who I'm going to be to the world, the face I'm going to put on, and I'm going to curate my posts, and I'm going to put up pictures that make me look really good or make me look really interesting, uh, that on the one hand is is not completely different from just what it means to be human and to present a face to the world. But on the other hand, it's, again, so immersive. It sucks you in. Uh, Now, I know that people, we can spend a lot of time time in front of the mirror every morning if we wanted preparing what we're going to project to the world. But social media is, can be even more than that and even yeah. more engrossing. And it teaches us to slowly recalculate our value as humans based on the response that we get to the identity that we project and, yeah. and things like that. Well, it's it's worse than a mirror because you're not only looking at yourself in the mirror, but you're comparing. It's like you can see everybody else in yeah. the same mirror. Yeah, exactly. And you can compare all of your blemishes with yeah. everybody else's. Yeah, yeah. so I think it, it encourages things that are just that are just not good. Yeah. But it, again, it, and some people will, will go the route of saying, well, I'm just not going to be on social media. I think that's a, that's a fine choice. If, if some people want to make that choice, I think especially with, with issues of data protection and things yeah. like that, it, yeah. it might be the wisest choice to make. I'm on social media. I, I've at different points uh, either deleted my account, which just hides it. It's still really there. Right. Or I'll like ask my wife, hey, change my password and don't tell me what it is because I don't want to be on it for a while. Um, and I don't think I use it obsessively. Um, and I try like, uh, well, like even just talking at the beginning about the, the marathons and the ultra marathons, I haven't posted any of that on social media. Cause I'm like, why do I don't, I don't need to tell there's like people don't need to know that. Like, it's an interesting thing about me that can make a fun way to start talking. Right. We talked about it here together. Uh, but I don't like, I haven't posted that on social media. Right. Because, because to me, it's like, I, I just want to be careful about thinking, well, why would I post that? Yeah. And is that reason for posting something that I want to encourage in myself? And so so that's just one minor way that I think, I mean, people who are super anti-social media would probably say that I've still got all kinds of problems with it. But I think that I'm at least trying to be a little reflective uh, with it and, and think, what good am I wanting this to serve? And what bad things am I watching out for and really trying to, to not allow to take hold in me? Well, there is a there is definitely a habit in most people, and I would put myself in this camp of if if there's an important life event 
it has to be posted. Yeah. There's yeah. a ritual of posting, yeah. a liturgy of posting yeah. that goes along with memorable life moments. Yeah. I post, therefore I am, you know, or yeah. I post, for therefore some, it happened. Yeah. For some people, that's as simple as just a really good plate of food. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. then for other people, it's a graduation ceremony. Yeah. You know, I have to post a picture of my son's graduation. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. When I think too that... In, in the bad thing that can happen with that is just thinking like, I need to project out to everybody how awesome my life is. Right. But, the, but on the flip side, you could do some of those very same things, but you're doing it because there are people that you're not geographically near that you want to include and yeah. connect to what's yeah. going on. Um, so for instance, if I had posted anything about my running, it probably would have been in order to connect with other runners that I know who weren't at that race, right? And so so that then is a means of connecting with people, not a means of projecting to other people something about myself. And there, there's some overlap there, but I think that that's one way to think about the difference. You know, for like my children are growing up pretty far away from grandparents, right? Because God called us here to union. And so sometimes we, we post things that, you know, if their grandparents were in town, like we, we just, we wouldn't post that because they, they'd be there, they'd be part of it. And so we were able to use those things in a way that, that connects and maintains relationships. But at the same time, we try to be really careful to not let it go overboard, recognize that relationships at a different, at a distance are different and they're always going to be, whether you have that Facebook thing now that follows you around while you walk around the room or not. Uh, and so recognizing the dangers that we can recognize while also still trying to use some of the, the legitimate good, I think, that, that can come of it. Though I, I recognize, I mean, you, you said you'd, you talked to, to Dr. Barnard already. I'm, I think his take on social media is probably more negative than mine. Um, he, he, he said some things that I was surprised by. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It, it, was, it, was, it was very good. It, uh, it makes you think for sure. So continuing on the discussion of liturgy, I mean, I don't, I don't want to give too much of the ending of the book away, <laughs> but... Uh, if, if you're willing to go into it, you you talk about some some alternative habits. Yeah. At the end, uh, to to replace the bad habits with. Yeah. So first of all, without you know, but b- before hitting any of the details, I just want to say that I found that super helpful because, and this was also something that Dr. Barter and I talked about. It's important not just to get rid of bad things, but to replace them yeah. with good things. Mm-hmm. And even sometimes to get rid of good things and replace them with better things, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. would be what fasting is, yeah. right? You give yeah. up something good in order to replace it with something better. Yeah. I think a lot of people only think of fasting as just giving up mm-hmm. instead of the second part of the equation, which is take up this instead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so what I try to do... First of all, in the book, I really try hard not to make it seem like I've figured out the answer. Because really, the funny thing is, if you've figured out the answer and you can put it in a five-step thing, you've created something very similar to an algorithm uh, to solve your problem, which is then just another technology uh, to solve your technological problem. So so I don't think that there's one answer to this. What, What I try to do is identify some practices that, that in my thinking, some things that I can do to work against some of the obvious ways that technology forms us. And so I, I end up in the book uh, using the kind of combining all of the images together into uh, the potluck, which is something from my 
past growing up in the church is a, is a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, a, a time when uh, people come together and actually spend time together talking to each other. So there's a physical presence. There's storytelling there, which is fundamentally different than posting status updates. You know, stories draw people in and still convey information, but they're very different, and yeah. especially when embodied. There's also an element with a potluck of food. And I think food preparation is one way that we see uh, technology and human relationships. Uh, like uh, food can be really technological now and easy. Like you can just, everybody can bring fried chicken and no one has to spend much time dealing with that. You just go pick it up. But really food preparation, the time that you spend, if you, you spend time preparing food for someone or cleaning up after a meal, it communicates love and it communicates uh, hospitality in a way that, that fast food just doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, last year uh, we hosted our uh, Sunday school class for our Thanksgiving fellowship and my wife and I had talked about it. And when I told the the, the couple that is our teacher, I told them we'd host, I said, there's, uh, I think I had a few conditions, but the one, <laughs> one of them was, we will not use plastic plates. Okay. We will use our we will use our plates. We will use our silverware, and we'll wash them when it's done. Uh, now, some of them we're able to use the dishwasher for. So I know again, well, you're putting them in the dishwasher, but still, like th- th- having a meal like on plates that someone's going to have to clean to me communicates something different yeah. about what's going on there, and about the hospitality, and about the human relationships, and about the the sacredness of the time together. And so I think that there are little things like that 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 remind me that no, it's not the most efficient way to do that meal. It's not the most efficient way, mm. but efficiency is not a virtue. Efficiency is a measure of productivity. It really depends on what you're producing. You could produce bad things efficiently. Efficiency is not good then. We are extremely inefficient creatures, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. It seems like we've been made that way. Yeah. (laughs) We have to sleep for a third of our lives. Yeah. We have to eat food and drink water every day. Yep. We need to be around each other all the time. Yep. 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 We are not efficient. Yeah. So I think that's another place where I think that the world that we live in uh, tends to think, t- t- tends to make us think that if something is more efficient, it is better. Yeah. But that we forget uh, that it all depends, like, we'll say speed. Speed is good if you're headed in the right direction. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's not good if you're headed in the wrong direction. And it's not good if the journey's important. Looking back on past, I guess, seasons of my life, and I don't have a whole lot to draw from. I mean, I'm still very young, but by far the most joyful year that I've ever experienced was a time that was marked by a lot of feasting and Mm. a lot of food and community. Mm. And it was, um, one of my years as a student here and it was, uh, it was sophomore year and there was a, a close group of friends that would just share a lot of meals together. Yeah. And it was very simple and it was very inefficient because college students have way more time than they realize. (laughs) And uh, you don't realize that until after you've graduated. But uh, yeah, I just looking back, I can see that play out in my head that there's so much joy and fulfillment that comes from those simple moments. Yeah. 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 And I think identifying some things like that, at least for me, as I thought about, well, what, what, what can I do to work against this this notion of efficiency, or or what can I do that works against this idea that for me to to perform my identity or post something, or for me to just be on my phone in community with people rather than really you know 
present with people. It, it doesn't mean that, of course, like people have been to imperfect potlucks where everybody's mean. Sure. Everybody brings the same cold fried chicken. Yeah. It's just a bad experience. So I'm not saying that like, oh, the solution to the technological problem is for people to eat together. It's not that simple. But at the same time, it kind of is, right? So like doing that, does move a little bit in in the, in that direction. Again, recognizing that this isn't something that we can just fix by making the right decision once, but rather it's it's looking for ways of being that will, uh, by God's grace, shape us more into uh, the image of His Son, which is the habit. Yeah, the yeah. habit, and that that I think you know we can put Christ in as our ideal of human flourishing, and and we. Urge, you know, urgently pray that God will make us into his image. And then we also, by God's grace, look around and identify ways that we think we can work. It's that uh-huh. whole, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you. You know, it's, it's both yeah. of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no food involved with us sitting here, but I can, I can say that with every conversation that I've had up till this, I mean, including this one on, on the podcast, every time I learn things that I didn't expect to learn, you know, and, and, and there's there's a, a joy that comes from these conversations that you just can't get from a phone call yeah, or from yeah. an email. Yeah. I mean, we could have we could have shared, you know, bullet points about this conversation over email, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a face to face, and there's there's eye contact and hand gestures, and it's and it's real and 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 tangible and i and i appreciate you for for coming here and doing this yeah yeah i'm so, glad it worked out it was much better than our, our we were thinking we were gonna have to skype it and i'm glad that, that this was able this, to work this out worked out really better. good yeah yeah so you've got you've got a quote here that i'd like to i'd like to share it's it's really it's really quick it says the table can wire our brains too and that seems like a good summary for what you were just talking about yeah, so thanks um we're coming up at the end of our time do you have anything else that you want to leave people with yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess just what I shared when I started as far as the audience of what I was trying to do, I still yeah. don't feel like I'm somebody who has technology figured out. I mean, sure. there are certainly there are folks around here who who I feel have much more wisdom on it and see things that I don't see. And really what, what I was trying to do in my in my project was just try to call more people's attention to it. So I don't see myself as somebody with all the solutions. I hope that you know there are others who do have many of them, and I just hope people will will take a little more seriously uh, that that it's not as simple as do I do sins with or on my phone or do I not? You know, it, yeah. it's deeper than that. Yeah. And if we want to be uh, transformed, if we we pray and seek the transformation that God by His grace gives, then we have to be willing to look more deeply at it than uh, than some some of us are are uh, used to. Okay. Well, let's put in one last plug for your book. Where can people find it? Uh, you can find it, unfortunately, like uh, probably on Amazon or on <laughs> – it's, it's published by InterVarsity Press Academics. So the IVP website would, would be a good place to get okay. it. Uh, here in Jackson, we have uh, one Christian bookstore now. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's a Christian publisher's outlet, I believe. That's and right. I, I, I'm not sure how many new books they, they have there. So I don't think that it is, uh, it is there for local uh, people. So they're probably – unfortunately going to have to turn to the internet uh but again i i think that in some ways that that can still be good so yeah amazon we can encourage or, people or to shop locally anyway yeah, yeah yeah go to christian publishers outlet uh the i know the manager he's he's great he's and, great uh and it would be maybe one day my my book will be there but i don't think it is yet so well it's called transhumanism and the image of god so dr schatzer thank you so much for your time yeah thank you for having Appreciate me it's it. fun all right signing out <laughs>